my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Tyler Tringus. He is the founder of Earnest Capital. They provide funding for bootstrappers. And for those of you who don't know, a bootstrapper is someone who uh, builds a company based off of revenue alone and does not seek to raise money, which is interesting. And I'm excited to talk more about Tyler, about how they actually provide funding for these people. So welcome to the show, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why would a bootstrapper... Or like what, what is the, so if a bootstrapper is building a business based off of revenue alone, is that an accurate definition? I, I think so. I mean, so I call what we do funding for bootstrappers because it's a conversation starter. I say it and then a lot of people kind of sit there and, and grapple with some of those words and, <laughs> and struggle for, to sort of ask follow-up questions. Um, but, you know, I think the 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 premise of what we do is taking the the bootstrapper mentality and word bootstrapper means a, a lot of different things to most people one of the things it means is you know i didn't raise any outside capital but it also has a lot of these connotations around building kind of sustainable profitable calm companies that are not necessarily trying to be rocket ships or unicorns or any of these sort of things and one one of the core questions that we ask is you know do those two pieces, the never raising any capital and the other piece of raising a profitable, sustainable, calm company, do they have to be together or can you sort of split those apart? And can you actually, um, you know, build a fund that can invest in these companies um, while allowing them to, to maintain a level of independence and, and run their companies the way that they want to do it? So, so that's kind of our, our objective is, is to ask that question. And is it still the same time frame for those of my listeners who don't know a venture a venture firm usually has a 10-year horizon, so they're looking to get uh, their, their exits after a 10-year horizon. Is it the similar type of thing with you guys? I would say that we do. Um, candidly, we don't know because this is this is new, right? So, you know, you certainly see folks you know, if you think about the sort of bootstrap heroes, right, you start thinking about companies that have been successfully bootstrapped, often you see longer time horizons, they tend to run these companies to really never want to have to exit them. So they often run these companies for, you know, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Um, so, so basically, we'll find out, um, because we are a fund, uh, we do have to have a, a closed end date uh, for, for what our time horizon is. And, and we've stuck with 10 years to really Try, try to not have too many moving parts relative to to what works in in the venture world um, but we have structured our investments to make it so that um, we never really 
put pressure on or force a company to exit. Um, we, we try to get a return out of the business as they run it in a profitable fashion. So we see money coming back to us and to our investors kind of along the way. So we're not sitting there tapping our toe saying, when are we going to get a dime of our, of our investment back? Um, and then if they want to continue running it forever, we kind of have this residual interest where we want to help them keep building that and keep growing that. And, you know, basically nine years from now, we're, we're one year into running the fund, you know, we'll have to kind of see where these companies are and, and decide what we'll do then. Um, mm-hmm. But we do generally have roughly the same time horizon. And how did you, who did you look to for kind of a mental model as to how to structure that? Like, it sounds almost similar to a restaurant almost. Like, did you have any kind of prior models or did you come up with it yourself? Candidly, um, you know, earnest as it is, constructed and and I can talk about there's kind of two pillars of it um, but but both of those were just really built working backwards from my own experience as a founder um, you know I kind of going in you know reverse chronologically so most recently I, I was a, a bootstrap you know software as a service founder myself I built this business that started as a kind of small little side project eventually grew into a a company that I ran remotely for about five years. I learned that when you build these software businesses, they can become really powerful, profitable, sustainable businesses. Um, and then after five years of running it, um, I sold the business to a private equity shop for, you know, like a, a pretty life-changing amount of money, candidly. And and I was sort of working backwards from the beginning and recognizing that you know, a lot of these businesses still even though once they get up and running, they can be run through their own cash flows at the earlier stages, they really still could use some capital. Um, in my case, you know, I basically built the business by racking up about $60,000 credit card debt was my seed round, right? Um, and, and that's not really a great way to launch a business. And so it was just working backwards from, okay, you know, if I wanted to back a business like mine and, and along the way, I met, you know, hundreds of other founders building kind of similar businesses. So I kind of put all those into a group and said, if I wanted to back all these at the earliest stages, what would that have to look like? Um, And essentially kind of, you know, started with a blank sheet of paper and designed an investment term structure that I felt was really aligned with, with those kinds of outcomes. And we called it the shared earnings agreement eventually, but really kind of invented it, you know, from, from whole cloth. Um, We, we open sourced the term sheet and then put it out there and got a ton of feedback on it. But, um, but that was kind of the first step was just, okay, what were terms that I felt like investors would find attractive and would work for me as, as a founder going back to that early stage. And then the second piece is the kind of actual strategy, right? So how do you make a bunch of those and turn that into something that, um, you know, is actually kind of a fund level return that more and more investors will want to give you more and more capital because I, you know, we'd like to scale this up to be something that can meet the demand from lots of bootstrappers. Um, and so those were the two pieces and, and both of those really just had to be created, you know, from personal experience with, with a lot of great feedback from folks along the way, but um, we didn't really copy it for any other kind of industry, I guess. Um, this is really cool because this gets into creativity, which is something I talk a lot about. And usually when I say the word creativity, particularly people in business are like, oh, I'm not creative. I don't do art. Um, but what you <laughs> described is art. Uh, is art. It's essentially creating something new that didn't exist. And I see the theme of the high leverage potential of individuals and small groups of individuals um, that didn't exist before technology starting to become much more 
powerful is that like, you know, WhatsApp was only built by 19 people. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not a, I don't know whether they were bootstrapped and well, actually no. that what they did start out, they started out with like charging a mm-hmm. small subscription in order to, and then they just grew like crazy. Um, and yeah. it's like this small amount of people, even sometimes one or two or three people that is, that is kind of creating this new opportunity to do things very differently than traditionally has been done. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there are genuine returns to creativity just in the in the raw sense of creating something new. And, and now that you've got sort of modalities like, you know, remote work and Twitter and things like that, um, you know, it's really amazing uh, what you can sort of get off the ground just on the kind of raw idea alone. Um, the experience so far of launching Ernest has been pretty amazing. I, I sort of, you know, created this investment structure and this strategy. And then, you know, I probably knew um, a decent number of founders who, who could be sort of investors in our fund, uh, but not nearly enough to actually put the fund together. And so, you know, after getting that, that ball just rolling with a couple of, of early folks who bought into the idea, um, which has been, you know, pretty mind blowing that, you know, I, I don't have a, a deep investing experience. This is really coming out of, more or less the, the individual merits of, of the actual idea. Um, and it's just kind of rolled from there that, you know, we have folks who will, you know, sort of hear about what we're doing um, just through word of mouth. They'll go and they'll read some of the stuff. We try to be really, really transparent about our processes, our strategy, everything. They'll read it and they'll show up in my Twitter DM saying, you know, um, Hey, I, I'd love to invest in the fund, which is unbelievable, you know, in terms of something that would be, totally impossible, you know, even a decade ago. Um, so and it's is it been really same, cool. Is it the same thesis where, you know, as a, as a normal venture fund is looking to get one company that will pay off the whole entire investment or is it because of this kind of like slower drip of interest? Is it, is it a different kind of incentive for them to invest? No, it's a very different um, portfolio construction theory is what you would say. So, so the idea is, you know, a, a lot of folks talk, think about, you know, for folks in the industry, you think about an individual investment into a company, but if you're running a fund, you need to think about a whole portfolio and some of them are going to fail and some of them are going to do well and you have a distribution of outcomes. And then how do you make that consistently and reliably add up to a return for investors that, you know, is, is attractive, right? So it needs to be higher than, you know, stocks and bonds, which are a little bit more liquid. I can put a dollar in and take it out next week versus with these kinds of funds, you know, you're locking up capital for the long term. So you need to see good outcomes. Um, so earnest capital has sort of two fundamental bets at the core of, of what we're doing. The first one is, is what I talked about earlier, which is kind of creating a new financial structure that aligns us with um, sustainable, profitable businesses. So in, in the sort of venture world, you really want to see companies that reinvest every dollar and grow as fast as they can. Oftentimes, they're losing money and raising more capital to just grow as quickly as you possibly can. Um, and, and, and that's a kind of rational approach based on, on their investment strategy. We start by creating a financial structure that says, hey, you might want to just run this business very profitably. You might want to grow really fast for five years. And then actually you decide that you've got a pretty healthy market share, nice margins, and maybe you should just have a business that throws off $10 million a year in profit. We want to be aligned with that outcome. And the second one is basically a questioning of the basic 
portfolio construction in angel investing and venture investing, which is essentially that, you know, most of the bets you make are going to fail. You might, you know, people throw out different numbers, 70%, 80%, 90% of the investments you make will just evaporate into dust. Um, and so the ones that don't fail, you need to have them be as big as possible to make up for all the losses to still net out with, with a good return. Um, our basic bet is that, um, that that is not a fundamental law of physics around you know, how all startups or all early stage companies work and that through a combination of filtering and strategy, you can get you know, a higher percentage of wins, even if maybe you are getting a lower percentage chance of getting you know, a $10 billion outcome. And the, the thought experiment I like to use is, look, if I raised a fund that was going to write $100,000 checks into exclusively people uh, opening McDonald's franchises in, you know, mid-sized American cities, right? You would not expect there to be, you know, one massive outlier, you know, and then a whole bunch of failures, right? You would expect a pretty normal distribution of outcomes. Most of them would do about the same. You'd have a couple that did pretty badly. Probably none of them would fail, you know, and one of them would do a little better. And so our basic bet is, can we sort of tweak that distribution to where we can find companies that still grow fast, still do really well, far fewer of them actually fail, um, and then, you know, end up with, with basically reasonable returns for our investors. Um, and then, but all of the companies that you're investing in are related to technology, though. Yeah, I mean, I use the thought experiment of, you know, the, the McDonald's franchises just to show the extreme end, right? Because you will meet certain people who invest in entrepreneurs who say no, like these kinds of, it's called a power law, right? Where the, the largest returns, you know, are bigger than the entire rest of the portfolio. Um, and they'll say, no, this is an iron law of physics about how investment works, right? And so I use this thought experiment to say, well, surely you can imagine a, a, a scenario in which you can invest in entrepreneurs that would, that would be different. But we're actually much closer to the world of venture than we are to McDonald's franchises. We're, we're still investing primarily in um, software or, or technology-enabled companies, um, usually very sort of low overhead, you know, remote teams, um, and have a big focus on software as a service just because that's that's my background um, yeah that's what you know yeah. uh, so I mean the big example that goes into my head is Basecamp and I just love their story and love that they just moved to Chicago and that they do all the things that I just I, I love hearing about what they do um, mm -hmm. it makes me think a lot about you know maybe in your personal journey as well you started this company um, it's you know you're bootstrapping so I imagine the first year two years are really tough but then once you start getting money in it kind of and then it's reliable and sustainable that must feel really good and then I, I wonder about the question about boredom, an individual boredom. Um, it's not, I have ADD, so I get bored with some things pretty quickly. So for this podcast, I've had to essentially sw switch, not switch, I, I still go within the general theme, but I'm, I like to keep it very open and broad-ended so I can explore all these different avenues. Do you have a similar type of thing, or are you pretty good at being like really focused? And once you got this business idea, you were like, you know, all into it, and you didn't have any kind of wavering doubts about it, or what, what was that process like for you? That's a good question. I mean, personally, I think I'm I'm very much in your camp. If if you know, it's become harder and harder for me to concisely explain like 
my background in the sense that, you know, I started off in the clean energy markets working for a startup that was effectively a sort of niche McKenzie doing consulting engagements and all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, then I worked for Bloomberg and then I was a software entrepreneur and then I taught myself to code and I was getting paid as a Rails programmer. I took a brief interlude and was a COO of a nonprofit and now I run a fund, you know. So, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think that I get bored easily and, and have a you know, no problem kind of switching to new things. Um, what I'm finding is that this is possibly the ideal job for, for folks like that because um, you're just constantly faced with new and interesting challenges. Uh, somebody shows up, um, you know, with a, a potential investment opportunity and you have to rapidly learn about an entire market that you never even considered existed before. And, and particularly what we do, you know, one of the reasons that, one of the ways that we think our strategy works is by focusing on niches that are, you know, there's not 15 different software companies that are all trying to tackle the video conferencing market or the project management market. Um, you know, we get one of our most recent investments was in, uh, you know, a, a company that does has software for generating the end credits in films. And so I had to do a deep dive into what is the tool chain for, for launching a feature film and, and what are the costs and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I had no idea about any of that stuff until, you know, I had to, to dive into that. So um, this is a great engine for, for sort of following curiosity for sure. And so I want to, I want to stick on that question, but I'm coming up with a new question as well. Um, maybe it's not a question. So the, the original question is, but what about for the founders who are creating these businesses mm -hmm. and then having to do like five to 10 years, but then I want to put a pin in something else, which is like that these niche opportunities, it's reminds me of the saying in Taoism, which is like the many, the 10,000 things. There's just so much out there, particularly in the industry of little, little tiny things that you can do, which you can make a huge business. And for an example of that is a friend of mine who you might want to talk to, uh, who started to uh, referral engine for lawyers um, and you know it's really niche on, on providing really niche information on specific types of law and now it's like a big business it's like a very very mm -hmm. big um, you might already know them actually um, and so the, there's a 10,000 things but I want to go back to that question about like what about these founders who are like dedicating 10 to 15 years I mean I guess that's a founder for any company like you, you, and I guess it, it once you're in it there are so many new novel type of th problems that show up that that's still thing but you are committed to that thing right uh, yeah i i think this is a this is a you're you're describing a challenge of entrepreneurship in general right in the sense that you in general are are committing yourself to something and and i think the folks who who we back maybe are I would say probably in a better position than if you go and raise 10 million bucks in venture capital, because um, one of the things that we try to do is to make sure that you maximize optionality for, for the founders. So we go to sort of great lengths and, and actually our investment terms are a little bit more complex than I would like them to be because of the fact that we try to keep as many avenues as possible open for the founders, right? So for example, if they, um, one thing would be making sure that you don't raise too much money because maybe you're going to build a great business and then you're going to get bored of it after three years, but you've built a really profitable business and somebody would like to buy that business from you for $10 million, 
if you've raised $10 million of venture capital, you cannot sell that business for $10 million, right? Like you have locked yourself into working on this thing or, or bust, right? Or shutting it down. You've got one of those two options. And we try to keep those, those options open for founders to say, hey, if, if success for you is eventually seven years in, you kind of start to wind down your role in it and you hire an outside CEO and you want to become the chairman, great. If success for you is, you know, two or three years from now, you decide you want to sell the business. Um, I, I would say we probably wouldn't want to invest in someone who, who came to us saying, my plan is to sell this business in 18 months because th- that's generally kind of um, not a recipe for success. But, but we try to keep the option open, right? Um, so, but, you know, I think, I think most of the time what folks find who, who run businesses like this for long enough is that there's an endless number of things to get creative with. So, so one of the things we have is an amazing group of, of what we call mentors. And they also happen to be like a, about 40 or so incredibly successful software founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, um, who are all investors in our fund and then make time available to mentor um, the, the companies. And also, I get to make use of them, <laughs> which is great. Um, and, and so one of the founders is Natalie Nagel, who's the, um, the founder of Wildbit. Yeah. And, and so they're doing all kinds of incredible experiments around, um, you know, can we keep building this business while running a four day work week? Can we keep building this business? You know, I mean, they've been running a remote team since longer than almost anybody. Right. And so you find that there are kind of endless ways to, to stay curious and stay interested in it beyond, let's say the, um, you know, the, the one specific product problem that you're solving. And particularly because you don't have this, kind of essentially deal with the devil uh, over 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 your head, which is like you have to turn into a billion, two billion dollar company, which is like the chances of you doing are very, very low, but you took that money and that's the bet and everybody's agreed to that bet. So we're going to do that bet. Um, so you don't have that hanging over your head. So you kind of got a little bit more of a, of a ability to experiment with things that your investors you know, might not be on board with because they want to get that billion dollar exit. Right, exactly. And again, you know, this kind of comes around full circle to the bet around, you know, one of the things we try to maximize is sustainability, right? So we want as many of our companies to survive as possible. And that's something that I, I tell my founders, I tell my investors, look, you know, if we see the same number of failures as a traditional venture or seed investor or angel investors sort of portfolio, this is not going to work. You know, we, we won't lose everyone's money. You know, it's not going to be a disaster, but we're not going to provide a, you know, a, a sufficiently high return if, if a lot of these fail. So we really optimize for, you know, sustainability. We, we really try to make sure that founder burnout, you know, doesn't really drag down the portfolio. And so if that means running these kinds of experiments and, and learning what's going to keep you in the game, um, we're all for that. <laughs> and so what are the most interesting niches that you've found so far? What are the uh, kind of the niches that are most promising or most unexpected? I mean, that movie credit one is pretty interesting. What are some other ones that are just like kind of mind blowing? I would say a, a big pattern that we're seeing is um, specific industries. So the, you know, the amount of work that's still being done out there on Excel spreadsheets uh, by hand, over email, over WhatsApp, um, you know, manually is still just absolutely immense. And you know, I call it the sort of peace dividend of the SaaS wars, right? So you had a bunch of these huge, you know 
vertically focused um, companies get built like Salesforce and like MailChimp and you know, all these things. And they have these big monoliths. And what's happened out of that has been a lot of the components to build products like that are now very, very cheap. They're very, very scalable like and very linear, right? So you can build a legitimate SaaS product that people would be willing to pay for paying almost zero dollars, right? You can have like a free Heroku account. You can have the free tier of all these different pieces and one person can, can build a, a actually like pretty functional product in what used to need millions of dollars just to get off the ground before you could get your first paying customer. Um, and so what we're seeing is folks are taking that and often they come from a particular industry. So they've worked in that industry for years. They understand this one particular pain point. So, so one of the first investments we made was in a company called Hostify. And uh, the founder had run an IT managed services businesses. So the people who literally come and set up the Wi-Fi networks in your office building. And one of the things that he found that was incredibly annoying was setting up the the actual hosting software for the hardware in the building. Totally separate business, right? It's like you have to have a separate IT guy. You have one person who does all the hardware, does all that sort of stuff. And then you have to set up and manage all of this open source software. And so he understood that pain point. And because of all this piece dividend, the SaaS wars was able to spin up basically a managed hosting service for a lot of these software. So in the same way that you can go and download WordPress and you can you know, set up your own, uh, you know, virtual private server, you can run Linux, you can install it yourself and put it in there, or you can go to GoDaddy or, you know, uh, any of these, you know, providers and one click. Now you have WordPress set up. He does this for, um, for a variety of software that the IT and service providers industry uses. And that's the kind of pattern that we're seeing is folks who deeply understand an industry, find a repeatable pain point, either kind of learn to code themselves or find a, a technical partner and then they launch software to solve that. And it's not a big enough industry that you could ever imagine a $10 billion business out of it. But, you know, it's, you can build actually very surprisingly <laughs> large businesses in, in these sectors. So, so interesting. Yeah. This question keeps on coming back to my mind of what you guys are doing is a product of the last 20 to 30 years of technology. I've been interviewing my dad who was a journalist in the tech industry in the nineties and all of this mm -hmm. stuff just didn't exist. Like, you know, the Excel sheets, like the Excel sheet, that was the software that totally changed the world. Cause before that people were doing that on their, you know, they were writing it out on hand and like you couldn't do calculations that quickly. And for the, the people in the nineties, that was just like massive. Uh, and then now mm -hmm. in, the, in the late, you know, late um, almost on 2020, we're getting to the point where all of these companies have taken these large market shares, what you're talking about. And then there's all these little things that are going on. And it makes me think of being here in Colombia. And the last conversation I had is that Latin America has not had that happen yet um, in terms of these large companies coming in and well, they're just starting to come into it. So they're just starting with the finance, FinTech education and e-commerce. Those are the three things that need to be set up before all these other types of things can, can kind of, and then the SaaS, I guess SaaS is another thing I'm, I'd be interested to start. I want to do more investigations into SaaS companies in Latin America to see whether that is opened up yet. Um, but it makes me think mm -hmm. about what you guys are doing might be an opportunity here in Latin America eventually is like, what are these niche businesses that can be taken from the United States uh, and then applied to here as well? Have you noticed anybody doing that or 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's a big opportunity. Um, I, I think that's starting to be acknowledged even in the venture community. So you're seeing a disproportionate number of, of investments coming out of, you know, the, the top accelerators being, you know, either, either new models or basically extending a model that already works in the U S and Europe and, and taking it to Latin America. Um, and so I definitely think there's an opportunity there. I do think that, um, outside of a couple of countries, or if you can make the case that you might be able to build a sort of, you know, multi-country like you've seen um, uh, Rappi do, which is done kind of Postmates, and it's basically pan Latin America. But, you know, if you were going to do something that was regulated and in such a way that it'd be very tough to do cross-border, right? So if it was just going to be something for Colombia and really hard to expand beyond, um, you'd need to think about something like what we're doing, right? It's going to be hard to get a billion dollar outcome, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're just going to do, uh, you know, Casper, but for Colombia, right? Or something like that. Um, And so you'd kind of probably want to, to, to look at a model that, um, you know, but I would argue that that might be a good fit because, you know, you're not taking a huge amount of risk. You understand the supply chain, you understand the margins, you know, people want this if you can execute it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I definitely think there might be an opportunity there and, you know, I'm, I'm moving to Mexico city, um, next year, which is sort of a, a hub for this. I know, you know, 500 startups, all of Latin America is based there is a lot of Latin American hubs, uh, are in Mexico city. And I'll be really curious to see, you know, what folks are doing down there. And the, I mean, the founder of Rappi just recently moved there too. Rappi got started in Colombia, but then he moved to Mexico City in order to because it seems like Mexico City is becoming the the kind of that that hotspot for Latin America. If you want to start a company in Latin America, and that's the coolest thing. That's the I'm starting to do interviews in Spanish as well. Um, and the linguistic border. Uh, I once read an article a long time ago that that um, there are no national borders to the internet, and at that time there were no national borders. But now China has put a national border around their internet. Uh, so it's not as true anymore. But at the time, there are no national borders and still relatively similarly today, there are no national borders, but there is a linguistic border to the internet. So what I want to start mm-hmm. doing is getting more content out in Spanish for founders who want to understand what it really is like to start a company. Um, and then the cool thing about that is that it can go to any country in Latin America. So it's, you know, not only Latin America, not only Mexico to work, but in Colombia to work and Argentina to work and other places as well. Uh, so that's really mm-hmm. interesting, and I'm very interested to w- see what's going on in Mexico City. I want to spend some, some more time there and kind of chronicle what, what's happening there as well. I think that's a really interesting um, that you know you often have uh, linguistic corners of the internet where uh, you have a lot less, let's say, competition. So so our most recent investment was in a company called First Base, and what they do is make it outrageously easy to open a, a C corp or an LLC in the U.S. and set up a business bank account and all that sort of process 100% remotely. So they've basically dialed in that whole process to nuts, and they just launched Spanish language support. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so full stack, the entire process can be done in Spanish language right now, which is, um, I think, a, a brilliant move. Um, and I think more products that. Um, you know, could easily be exported in that way should consider, you know, I mean, it's hard to do internally. You need to find, you know, bilingual staff in an already competitive market for talent. But um, I think it's it's something that a lot of, uh, you know, particularly software companies should should consider is, hey, can we can we put this in a in a totally different language and, and access a new market where maybe we have fewer competitors? So, yeah. That's really interesting. And is that for space, is that, 
could you know somebody who's a digital nomad in Medellin sign up for face for space and then start doing business in the United States using that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it came out of my pain point of of you know often being myself you know for a while digital nomad and and for about five years most of the time I was running my last company I was um, basically running it out of a backpack and you know traveling around the world South Africa and Southeast Asia and stuff like that and um, you know I continuously ran into that pain point where you know you need to do some filing or you need to open a new bank account or something gets triggered and they're like oh could you just stop by the office it's like well I, I'm seven thousand miles away from your branch right now is there another way we could do this and and oftentimes the answer is is no if you don't have all the right pieces in place um, and so you know I was sort of constantly hunting for those sort of solutions um, even even literally opening the bank account for my current fund uh, required me to to fly from where I was living in Brazil uh, to the US. I, I happened to be going there anyway, uh, but they were like, there's literally no other way uh, for us to, to complete this part of the process. Um, and so, yeah, I was looking for that. And then, you know, obviously it, it becomes, I think you can open businesses in a lot of places right now if you're going to bootstrap the business. But if you want to raise capital, um, it becomes much easier to bring the business entity to the same locale as the fund just for tax and regulatory reasons than it is to to make the fund be able to invest globally. Um, so it's, it's a big advantage for us to have, you know, a go-to thing to point people to to say, hey, look, let's just open a U.S. LLC or a C-Corp and, and mm. we'll invest in that, you know. That's, that's cool. You get to invest in all these things that make your job ultimately easier. Um, yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so this is getting into something that I really like talking about, which is that I guess for the last 20 years, we've had this particularly in the West and the U.S., this idea of a global culture, not only in the U.S., but all over Europe as well, and maybe even a lot of other countries, is this global global citizenship, lack of borders, going anywhere, and the distribu- digital nomad thing has kind of arisen out of that. And it's all in this aspect of human creativity. I don't know if you've read the book Sapiens or all these other books where it's like where they talk about really our human human our major gift as human beings is the ability to tell stories and to create fiction and then rally people around this fiction and like point them towards an imaginary future that somehow also becomes then real. Um, and you know, yeah. money and borders and passports, all this stuff is not real. It's like, it, it, but it becomes real because we all agree on it becoming real. And so this, this, I'm trying to figure this out in Colombia is like, what is the hell is the difference between a digital nomad, a entrepreneur who happens to be in Colombia and a entrepreneur in Colombia who from Colombia who's building a company like what is the difference between all those things like what is there a real difference I don't know if anything sparked in your head from what I just said yeah I don't know I mean I guess I I feel like um, I think we need to embrace a little bit more of the creative destruction of these ideas that the you know, some of the things sort of, they, they serve a purpose to rally people around, uh, to create a sort of common language, you know, to create your tribe. And then, you know, I think I was talking about this here this is going to go a little bit off topic, but, you know, one of the things I've always found about myself is that um, I'm not, I definitely throughout my life, and I think it's changing a little bit, but have always been kind of anti-tribe in the sense that I never really bought into, you know, going to college and never even considered the idea of joining a frat. And, you know, I'm not like the most active person in the alumni group and all that sort of stuff. I would say over time, I've started to 
to acknowledge the benefits of building a tribe. Mm-hmm. But um, I like the idea of sort of, you know, questioning and, and breaking them apart and, and creating new ones and stuff like that. And so, um, like, I think we're going through a little bit of that with, uh, with like the idea of bootstrapper, right? You know, so um, it was uh, something that we really had to work on was to say, hey, look, you know, we're going to kind of question some of your core identity right now <laughs> around like being a bootstrapper. Um, and, you know, and it, it's been a rough process, you know. So, so I think, you know, Digital Nomad and, and those sorts of things are um, also in that same category of something that, you know, maybe the, the half-life of these things is starting to, to compress in the sense that it was super duper useful to sort of express the idea that like, hey, you could take your job or your company and you could also do it from the Philippines. And that was a really powerful idea that that resonated. But then it starts to sort of lose its its um, its utility. Uh, I think pretty quickly now. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I, right now I travel. I run my business remotely, but I travel with with my wife, who is posted with the government to different cities for two, three years at a time. Am I a digital nomad? Do I care if I'm a digital nomad? I don't know. <laughs> you know. Um, so interesting. Um... The thing you made a mention about university, I had never thought about it that way, that a university is essentially an elite tribe. That's that's in you mm. gaining access to this elite tribe. And then the fraternity is like an elite tribe within the elite tribe. Um, and I never thought about it that way, but it, it makes sense. So I did a bunch of exchange programs in Rio and Rio de Janeiro and in Thailand. And I noticed that the same dynamics we have in the United States where we have a whole bunch of good schools uh, and you get into those top schools, you become a member of that tri- tribal elite also exists in Thailand, also exists in Rio. Um, and so that whole thing about like, that's, and then, and then, you know, once you get in those things, then it becomes your incentive to basically both prevent a lot of other people from uh, accessing that elite tribe, but then also uh, to maintain that elite tribe and say, this, this is the thing that makes me the special because I did this thing and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, I, and I guess in some ways an entrepreneur is a lone wolf. Would you agree that most of the best entrepreneurs are lone wolves or would you say that and kind of create their own tribe? Or would you say that they are kind of, it, it, to me, it seems like they're not, they're not, they don't fit in anywhere. And that's what I feel like myself too. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a really tough question. Um, I was having a conversation recently and I was trying, we were sort of trying to figure out what's something that you've changed your mind on the most in the last, let's say, you know, decade. I'm in my mid thirties right now. So, so since kind of graduating college, what's something I've changed my mind on the most. And I think what I settled on is I have always been and, and used to be an incredibly diehard, um, meritocrat, I guess. I, I believe things, you know, should be and and are uh, more meritocratic than they are. And I believe they should be even more than they currently are. Um, and so I've always kind of uh, kind of been revulsed a little bit by, you know, in groups and and things that, that, you know, kind of create structural advantages for, for folks that are in and, and those that are not out. And I've always kind of taken glee and kind of blowing those up and, and trying new things and proving them wrong. Um, but I would say, I don't think I've come 180 degrees, but it's the thing that I've changed my mind on the most in the last 10 years has been the, you know, that things are not as meritocratic as they should be. And also maybe sometimes it's not the best path to, to just try to make them more meritocratic. Sometimes you just need to accumulate as many unfair advantages as you can and then, you know, deploy them for good. Um, And, and so I guess, 
that's something I've changed my mind on that obviously we're sort of doing a little bit with Ernest, right? Is that we are creating our own tribe of folks who, who frankly create unfair advantages. Like the folks who are in our portfolio, they get problems solved for them by folks who are in the mentor group that, you know, a, so, a lone wolf solo founder just mm-hmm. could not accomplish or, or would be far less likely to get done with, with the same amount of work. And, and I think to some extent that's a good thing because, you know, it's creating a lot more of these outcomes. Um, but at the same time, I do think, I guess some of the best entrepreneurs start from a point of, you know, more lone wolf, like questioning the assumptions, you know, questioning um, folks, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I still consider myself an entrepreneur, even though I'm doing investing. And you know, one of the things that when I started this fund was going back to the question around, you know, power laws and, you know, 90% of startups fail is that that's what I heard from a lot of people who had, you know, tons of success in this industry. They were like, look, you're just wrong about this. Like, this is just the way things work. And, you know, this is just not going to work. Like the math is, is against you. And I don't know. I sort of just like, I think I can prove you wrong. And I think you have to come from at least some degree that that kind of side of things um, to even be an entrepreneur, to even start being one. <laughs> so yeah, it seems like there's a balance there before an entrepreneur to how much to be a lone wolf and how much to create these unfair advantages. And the way that you create unfair advantages is by networking people together. That's what I imagine it is. I'm sure there's other ways to create votes, but probably a lot of them come from what you're saying. Y Combinator does the same thing. Y Combinator creates like crazy unfair advantages for the companies to go through because they give them access to this network. Um, and it reminds me of some philosophical thoughts I've had recently that I've gotten from other people, um, uh, which is civilization is this thing that takes the unconscious or takes the unknown and extracts the value out of that and builds a city and creates value. Uh, and so the, the chaos is everywhere around us. And then we have structure with civilization that creates the structure. And then as time goes on, um, you know, the people who, the young people who are kind of like in this unknown and like are more comfortable in the unknown and want to break down this shit, then we become, we become older and then we become more, uh, uh, more stable. And then the new generation comes up and breaks shit and then, and then questions the assumptions of the older generation. So it's like, and then we create culture. And as soon as culture and civilization um, gets created, it creates this thing that we were talking about earlier, of like this rigidity and structure uh, which for, becomes to- totalitarian in a sense and becomes tyrannical. Um, and then it needs to be broken up again. And, like, and so it's this constant like, thing that each generation successively does, but that's where the opportunity comes from as well. It's from this kind of creative destruction like, that you just said. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's really interesting. So this ba- there's a balance between being an entrepreneur because you're out there on your own trying to figure out how did this unknown you know like finding these niches the only way you're going to find those niches is if you figure if you go and you know break not break things apart but if you go and you explore um and do this work and you find out the problems and then you bring the problem back and you and then you but then you create a structure out of it and you create a company out of it and you rally how, how many employees are each of the companies that you're, you guys are funding like what's the average size of employees um uh, we invest really early on. So um, we we give some guidance on our kind of website where we tell folks it's usually kind of post revenue. So you should have launched a product and gotten some revenue, but we're very comfortable. And I would say probably about, you know, we've been around for just the first year. We made 13 investments and probably six or seven of those were 
um, the money that that put the founders in business in the sense that they'd launched something as a side project, they were freelancing or uh, still working a full time job, and our check was the money that you know gave them the comfort to sort of quit their job or spend down their freelancing and work on it full time. Um, and then you know we, I would say, relative to like the venture world, which has gotten very hyper specific, you know, funds are like we we only do this narrow slice and then we hand it off to the next group of funds. We're, we're sort of in the wild west here where, you know, we don't have a bunch of other funds waiting, you know, right above us to, to, to handle the later stage companies. So, so we invest all the way up to companies that are doing about a million dollars a year in revenue. Um, it's a pretty wide space. Um, so, and that might be a team of 10 or 12. Um, so anywhere from solo founder to, but, but still relatively small in terms of um, headcount, I would say. Mm. Really interesting. And then do are, do you see any of these companies turning into like hitting, hitting something big and then ending up needing to get that growth capital of a series B or series C series um, D type of situation? I think it will definitely happen. Um, you know, one of the things we really tried not to do was to make the, um, the inverse of the mistake that I think some of the at least financial instruments make in the venture world, which is they're very kind of a one-way ratchet, which is at the earliest stages, you're just two founders, you get into an accelerator, trying to figure out if this idea is even going to work. And then, you know, you, you raise, you know, 200K on a convertible note at a $5 million cap and all this sort of stuff. And, and that means you're basically on, you know, this one-way trip to, to you know, billion dollar bust, you know, at that very early stage, you just don't have the information for it. We didn't really want to make the inverse mistake, which is to say, you know, you have to be a small bootstrapped profitable company. And if you are a rocket ship too bad, you need to shut down and start over. Um, So we kind of go to great lengths to make sure that our investment can be, you know, convertible and can, you know, if, if, if they come to us and they say, you know, Hey, look, we, we think we have something here. Uh, We think there's a potential rocket ship and we want to go, you know, raise $7 million to go make it happen. We say, okay, cool, no problem. You know, we, we've sort of pre-written that into the agreement how that would work, and um, we think it'll happen. We, you know, um, well, I mean, I could say definitively it will happen um, in the sense that uh, it sort of has happened. Um, it's not publicly announced yet, but but one of our portfolio companies has raised a follow-on round, um, and so you know, it's it's not something that we actively oppose. Um, I do tell founders that if they definitely want to go that route, we're not going to be the best partners for them. You know, there are people who invest at the early stage that, you know, genuinely part of their wheelhouse is making introductions to those firms and making sure you get the best deal and they have their whole network there and all that. Um, we're not, that's not part of what we really bring to the table. Um, but we don't want to close out that, that opportunity, you know, in particular because, you know, we're, we're still very small, you know, we're investing out of our first fund, we're, we did 13 companies this year, and, you know, probably do about the same next year, but I would like to grow what we're doing to something really substantial, you know, hundreds and hundreds of companies a year, because the opportunity is, is immense, just based off the, the volume of, of word of mouth inbound that we get. And so we're going to get a much wider sample of entrepreneurship, um, you know, coming through. And so we need to make sure that, you know, when folks really hit on something that needs to grow fast, that, that we're there to support them as well. So I think for the last five minutes, I'd like to ask a question, which I guess like your whole life is doing right now is what are the best practices of turning a niche into a profitable and sustainable company? 
Uh, it's a good question. So the best practices for turning a niche. Um, so one of the things I would say is, you know, we, I would say we're seeing, um, I mean, the first one is just picking the industry, right? So, so there are certain industries that are um, amenable to technology. And so, you know, s- some industries like they should be using software, but if they are literally not looking um, then, you know, you're going to struggle, right? You do need to be sort of swimming upstream a little bit in the sense that they're already at least spending money on a problem or they're actively understand that this is a, a pain point for me and I need to solve it. Um, another thing, which is a sort of idea that I'm just exploring right now, I'm not that confident in, but um, sort of my present position is um, to look for real clear jobs to be done in the sense that, um, hey, like we're both at the end of this going to agree that this software accomplished the job. Um, there's the whole category of, of products out there that are like kind of more opinionated. So they have a, a real kind of point of view on how to do something. So we're seeing a lot of stuff like that in terms of team communication, in terms of um, HR, employee engagement, retention, in terms of hiring. Um, if you have a real serious point of view about how to hire, right? You should do it like this. You have this kind of compound risk of all the things about doing a software business. And then on top of that, people might say, I, I like, I, I understand I have this pain point. I have the budget to, to sort of solve it. And I know I need software, but I don't agree with the way that you're doing it. And, and that's a challenge for building business. Um, sometimes that is a way to carve out a niche. Um, so, so uh, it's funny because you know, you mentioned earlier, um, Basecamp is an example of this, right? And and the David and Jason from Basecamp are investors, they're mentors, they're a part of Ernest, and they also are very opinionated. They did a wonderful job of of weaving opinions into you know, their software, right? So they talk about how to build a comm company. They write a book about how to build a comm company. They write these long blog posts about how to do it. And their software has opinions about it. Um, and so I'm a little bit conflicted about that. But but at present, I think um, it may be uh, a category of things that are might be good to bootstrap, but might be hard for us to invest in. So, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Um, the other thing is, oh, go ahead. Uh, it just reminds me, it seems that we've a couple of times throughout this conversation, we've gone back, there's this philosophical point that uh, keeps on coming back to is the difference between an ought and an is. I think it was Kant who t- talked about this, K-A-M-T, uh, the difference between an ought and an is. And what you guys, what from that I just got, you guys are want to invest in what is rather than what should be. Yeah, I, I think I think that's accurate. Yeah, I mean, it, you don't want to be swimming upstream um, with your customer base. So, you know, mostly what you're looking for are people who are very frustrated. You know, using customers that are, they're frustrated, they understand that they have a pain point, you know, they're using Excel spreadsheets and, and, you know, sticky notes and stuff like that to solve this. And, and they know it's a problem so that when you show up, they say, you know, oh, thank God you're here. I've been waiting for you, right? Particularly if you're in a niche, because if you're in a niche, you really need to get a large percentage of the market. So one of the things that, that folks ask us, how are you quantitatively different from a, a venture firm? And I sort of describe this as we want to see businesses 
where the metrics look really good coming from the back of the business to the front. So a, a VC, I would say at, at the risk of simplification, you know, they're looking a lot at top line growth. How fast are you growing? You know, what, how many, what's your top of the funnel look like, you know, and, and, and you know, all that sort of stuff. We go from the back, which is when people sign up for your product, do they stay a customer basically forever? And then how many people who, you know, sign up for a free trial, convert to a paying customer. And you want those metrics to be incredible if you're going to build a niche because you need to get a good chunk of the market to stay your customer for a long time to build that business. Um, and so you want to see that really tight, you know, what we call like product market fit, right? So, so people understand this solves a core pain point for my business and, and you know, I'm never going to get rid of it. And, you know, it's interesting. So, um Robert Smith, who was the founder of uh, Vista Equity, who they, they basically mastered this in the sense that they're a massive private equity firm that buys these kinds of niche, vertically focused software businesses mm-hmm. and, and owns them forever. He's made the observation that basically wow. your customers, if you build these kinds of SaaS businesses that are industry specific and mission critical, they will keep paying you even before they pay the bank on their debt, right? Because they need your software to continue running. And, and that's kind of what you want to see if you're going to focus on a niche. You really can't be just building something that says, hey, you know, I think you should switch to, from MailChimp to us because, you know, we've got one more cool feature that works for you. It's got to be very tightly scoped to that industry. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I could go on and on, but um, I don't think we've mastered it yet, you know, but um, <laughs> that was very yeah, yeah, we're seeing real progress. So, And so just before you go, we go, there was one other best practice. You might have already mentioned it, but what, what was the other best practice that you were going to mention if you remember it um, right after uh, looking for a clear job that the software does? Uh, so, well, one of the things that I think I'm seeing is founders who have an unfair advantage in distribution. So um, usually that comes from working in industry for 10 years. So you know, hey, I'm going to go get my next 500 customers. Uh, and if I have to, I'll do it by going to these 10 conferences a year. I'll go to this website that I know is the sort of, you know, um, like most popular Facebook group for this industry where people hang out in. I know like the distributor who, who has the, the address and I could go knock on doors and find these companies and, and literally do a demo right there for them. Um, one area where I think it doesn't work is folks going into a niche who don't really know how to find these customers. Um, that is, has generally been a, a sort of recipe for failure. Um, and sometimes you, sometimes you can manufacture that um, in terms of just going out and finding some way to, to access these customers, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes you might have the best product for this particular industry and you just have no way to get a hold of these folks and your business isn't going to work. Um, so I, I would say that's something that I look for um, and I guess I would advise founders to think about um, if they have that uh, as they sort of start to dive into a, a, a niche business. Very cool. So for last, last time, uh, what, what is the event you guys are doing um, and uh, how can people find out more about that? Yeah, we are throwing a founder summit in Mexico City. It's March 12th to the 15th next year. Um, it's going to be, I think, uh, really cool. It's our first one of these. We're going to be bringing together just a ton of founders, um, a bunch of our mentors, a bunch of our portfolio companies, and then uh, 
other folks who, who can just buy a ticket and show up. Um, and the, the focus is going to be on doing things that um, are not really being covered in traditional tech conferences. So, um, and, and also with a big focus on being very hands-on. So we're focusing on things like um, teaching founders how to write better and be better communicators because as remote work, becomes more popular. It's very hard to be an effective leader without being able to write a really good blog post or a really good internal team update that rallies everyone. You can't just kind of walk into the office and buy everyone pizza and, and you know, rouse them. Um, so we're going to do a, a hands-on workshop on, on writing. Uh, we're doing a, a deep dive into uh, mindfulness and breath work um, specifically for founders. So, you know, dealing with stuff like uh, email apnea, right? So I don't know if you have this, but people stop breathing while they're writing like a, a tense email. This is something that, you know, you do it every single day, day in and day out, actually has a real meaningful drain on, on your work output. Um, so we're just going to do a bunch of fun stuff. Uh, we're doing it in Mexico City, so it's going to be great food and, um, and a good group of folks. So, uh, oh, folks can, can find out about that at uh, foundersummit.co. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.